Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. I'm so excited to be hanging out with you again this week. And this week's topic is a little unhinged, but also not completely off-brand. If you didn't know, I am quite the cult fanatic. I spent the entire summer of 2022 watching every single Netflix documentary, Hulu documentary, Peacock documentary, all about cults. I'm fascinated. We're talking Nixium, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, the one about the Bikram yoga instructor, Waco, Wild Wild Country, Heaven's Gate. Oh my gosh, you guys, I literally watched them all. I'm obsessed with cults. Just the way that they are so sneaky and sly and it's very intentional on who they target and they prey on and then the way that they control you once you're in there it is just it's fascinating to me also one of the things to know about me is one of my favorite podcasts is it sounds like a cult where they dive into the modern day cults or all of the things like Disney adults and spin cycle and bachelor, the things that we all love and do every day, but could be considered a cult. Well, today's episode is kind of similar to that. Um, We are going to be talking about the aspects that make up a cult. Like what are the things that make a group a cult? And also how many of those are applicable to our hospital system today. So today's guest is Billy Harrigan, and she's a traditional birth companion and the owner of Birth Trauma Ontario in Canada, who has been serving families for over 40 years. She also has extensive international experience, which helps her understand the complexities of modern maternity services and the pervasive issues that contribute to birth-related trauma and the negative outcomes of all of that. Billy also teaches midwives, nurses, and doulas how to give trauma-informed care and has taught the science of physiological birth in 125 countries. She is also the host of the Harrigan Hive, where they discuss birth outside the system. So, without further ado, Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted you invited me, and it's such a, a treat to be here talking with you. 
I am very excited about today's episode. I think it is probably one of the boldest conversations I've ever had on the podcast, but I think it's going to be one of the most honest as well. And so if you're tuning in today, get ready for a radical talk about how the hospital system is set up and how it serves or doesn't serve us um, in many regards. But before we do that, Billy, how did you end up doing what you're doing? How'd you end up here? It all started when I was a young woman pregnant with my first and I made the choice that was expected of me. I was expected to go to a downtown Toronto teaching hospital with an obstetrician and submit my body and my sexuality and my baby on the altar of modern medicine. And I did. And it was the usual experience. Horrific. Um, Baby ended up in the NICU when I was told she would die that night without me ever seeing her. I was damaged. That needed surgical repair many years later. I went home with intense PTSD and they handed me a child at the end of a, over a week that uh, looked like my husband and they told me it was mine. And they said, now go have a life. And that was my introduction. And I was told at the time that the reason everything went to hell in a handbasket was my perfectly healthy young body was uh, defective. Mm. I somehow mysteriously grew old babies. And the solution then was to swoop in sooner and rescue my next baby much, much sooner from my very faulty body. And I uh, joined the Leche League to figure out what to do with this screaming child, how to breastfeed. And I met women who liked having babies. I thought, you've got to be insane. Nobody likes having babies. It's awful. The difference was they didn't use those services. They just had a baby. And they went to each other's births and they taught each other how to eat and breastfeed and parent and cook, budget. And so, uh, wow, like you don't need to use these services. You can just have a baby. And that's the community I joined and had a whole lot more kids that way. And it was simple. And then I started to go down the rabbit hole of finding out, well, why did my baby almost die? Why was my body so broken? The information was all right there. It was just due to medicalizing a perfectly healthy young woman and running me through the induction mill. And it was the consequence of the induction mill that damaged the two of us as much as it did. And understanding that and realizing, my goodness gracious, there is so much research here. This was in the 80s. And we thought at the time, wow, you know, the lid has been blown off on what is routine and what the science says and the outcomes from not following and the induction mill and these routine procedures and the medicalization, my golly, we now have the truth. Didn't make one little bit of difference. Nothing changed, nothing. More books were published, more research was published, more women followed it. And the routines and the medicalization became even more entrenched. And the fear promotion became more precise and the coercion became more effective and the strategies used to gain compliance were, uh, they're very effective. And no, nothing did change. And I thought, you know, when my mother had a baby and she was uh, basically roofied, you know, they were were given uh, twilight sleep 
knocked unconscious, uh, given morphine for pain and then scopolamine for amnesia, which is being roofied. They were roofied through their births. Many of the women of my parents' generation just, you know, what was it like when your baby was born? And they're like, I don't remember. Not a clue. In the, I believe it was the 50s, Ladies Home Journal did an expose on abuse of women in the hospital birth system. It was absolutely shocking, but it isn't. At the time, uh, because a hospital system is a microcosm of the culture in which it exists. In the 50s, it was far more acceptable to beat women. Husbands could beat their wives and they would never be charged. So when women went into the hospitals, culturally, it was more acceptable to slap them, hit them, pinch them and beat them. And then the culture changed and it was less acceptable. Men weren't allowed to beat their wives anymore legally. They got charged and the culture changed and it was no longer acceptable for women to be beaten, slapped, hit. And the hospital culture changed. And so women were far less likely to be physically assaulted. Now, other cultures where it is more acceptable to physically assault women, there is a much higher rate of physical abuse in the hospital birth system. So in cultures where it is not illegal for a husband to beat his wife, uh, women will be more likely to be tied down, restrained, pat, uh, slapped, pinched, hit, punched. This is all in the academic literature. There's nothing here that isn't exposed you know, all over the world. I've been through thousands and thousands of documents to verify this. But in Western cultures, where it is now unacceptable to hit women, uh, the abuse is instead more uh, coercive, insulting, humiliating, verbal, spiritual, emotional, violation of her consent, intimidation, belittling. So that's more common form of abuse that happens in the hospital system. But it has not diminished, really. It's just changed what kind of abuse women endure in the hospital system. And truthfully, sometimes at home as well, if they invite a practitioner who has been trained under the medicalized model and is accountable to a hospital for her license and privileges, then it is far less common, but not unknown to experience the same kind of abuse in the home setting. It's that covert control of, that? of women, right? It's the, it's the um, slyness, the sneakiness, the feeding it to them almost as if it were under the guise of safety or if it were their idea, um, expecting and hoping that women don't know any better, don't know any different. Well, you don't want a dead baby, do you? Right. That's the most common threat. Uh, I, I did work with a researcher in, who had trained in the UK and had been working in Australia. And, and as an independent midwife, she had not really encountered that. And she thought, she thought perhaps, okay, it must exist, but perhaps it's rare. And then she started to do some significant research and found out that no, it is the most common coercive threat around the world is what we call the dead baby card. Wow. Yeah, so in the 80s, when I had my started having my babies and just and we discovered this incredible research, we thought, okay, well, you know, our mothers are no longer being they, we as their daughters are no longer being slapped and hit and restrained and pinched as much. 
And then we had our babies and we thought, well, my goodness, by the time our daughters are having babies, it will be evidence-based and it will be uh, aligned with the physiology of birth and women will have their voices heard. No, nothing's changed. In fact, many, for those of us who have been doing this for about 40 years, it's probably worse. Today, the outcome of the technocratic, medicalized, industrial birth services industry. Now, this is prior to the last three years of uh, whatever we went through. I have a lot <laughs> of words for it, but I won't use them today. <laughs> the last three years of what we went through. Prior to that, about one in three and sometimes one in two women experienced the birth of their baby as traumatic. Traumatic is not, well, dang, I wish that went better. It's not, well, I, you know, they didn't follow my birth plan. Traumatic is actually in the literature, and it is a very specific set of features, and it includes violation, fear for life, uh, threat of loss of life, um, loss of control. They're very specific features, and at least one in three have a traumatic experience. And about one in eight entered parenthood with postpartum PTSD. PTSD, now that's not like they're, you know, feeling badly about it. PTSD, this is one in eight with a full diagnostic criteria. And PTSD is actually a physical brain injury. So one in eight of their customers finishes, completes these services with a brain injury. That's the outcome of the technocratic medicalized birth services industry, not to mention the one in three to one in two women who end up with a scar on their uterus, about one in three with postpartum depression and or anxiety, which is comorbidity with PTSD. In uh, the research in Canada, the most recent we have is that one in 10 women postpartum have thoughts of self-harm. And the leading cause of maternal mortality in the developed world, it... Uh, varies between either being cardiac issues, but more often it's suicide. So one of the outcomes of this industry is that women kill themselves. So we're led to believe that what are we going to do if we don't use these services? Clearly we will have a dead baby. That's not what the research says. That's part of some pretty uh, epic marketing. And truly they believe it. I'm not saying they're mm -hmm. evil people in this industry. Of course, there are. I mean, people are people. I mean, there are obviously evil people everywhere. But for the most part, these are uh, benevolent people who feel that they are doing a good job. And they truly believe that the service they offer is the right service, that it is the right thing to do. And to not to submit to these services is, a, is irresponsible. It's dangerous. It's foolish. You're risking your life. You're risking your baby's life. And because they believe in what they do so much that they are willing to use strategies to convince people to use the services because they believe in them so much. And when you have, so really what we have is a belief system, the mm -hmm. delivery of these services that cause this much harm globally, but they adhere to it so vociferously that we've got a belief system. And to not align with the belief system usually comes with some consequences. You know, any of those of us who um, are publicly 
speaking about alternatives, I personally train traditional birth companions. Oh, we got a big old bullseye on our our backs. Yeah. <laughs> we are targeted, targeted for elimination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything that pulls the business away from the hospital um must be eliminated. It's it's um it's almost like a video game. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh uh the belief system is very entrenched. Um and because the adherents to this belief system uh feel that coercive strategies such as a dead baby card are appropriate, calling uh, child protective services on parents who don't acquiesce to services. This is becoming a f- increasingly common strategy. And my thoughts on that are, is that the dead baby threat is becoming less effective. Parents are tapping out. They're like, been there, heard it, boring, do something new. And now it's invoking child protective services. When families leave this system of services, because that's not what they want. Uh, in many ways, um, they suffer the consequences in this, in ways when people leave a cult. They lose relationships, they lose connections, they are um, met with some pretty punitive behaviors. They often worry that what if I do need medical services, I'm not going to get respectful care. Like, no, they probably won't. And when the, I specialize in trauma, so I, I work with uh, families who have medical trauma, historical trauma, adverse childhood experiences, uh, this is my specialty. When a family comes to me, uh, there's usually a reason. People don't start out with me. They don't just come to me and say, oh, I heard we could be having more VBACs. I, I'm going to go with you. That's not why they come to me. <laughs> I'm not entry level. By the time they get to me, they've been through a lot. And uh, I will say that they present in the same ways that refugees do. They are, in fact, refugees from the medical system. And they have left an oppressive regime. They fear for their lives. They fear for their babies' lives. And they come to me, by the time they get to me, or the, the companions that I train, They have many of the same health complications and complexities that you see in refugee populations. You see PTSD, sleep issues, substance overuse, um, hypertension, blood glucose issues, uh, malnutrition. So they present with many of the same complexities that we see. And these are not the clients that regulated midwives here in Canada will take because midwifery has been relegated to practicing obstetrics on healthy women. So they take what the industry calls low risk. Um, These women are not low risk and there isn't a chance in hell they're going to go have a hospital birth. So this is the clientele that comes to people like me, traditional birth companions. And we offer holistic non-medical because I'm not licensed, non-medical care to improve their wellness and help them have a baby in safety. Mm-hmm. And when we restore that sense of safety to them and they don't feel threatened, uh, their wellness um, explodes. It's quite remarkable. 
You know what just hit me so heavy with what you said is that there's an indoctrination process and it's on both sides. Patients are indoctrinated into it, but also providers are indoctrinated into it. And so then you just have this community that everybody is indoctrinated and no matter which side you're on, if you try and leave, you're going to face those punitive consequences. That is really scary to know that the medical system has systems in place that does not leave any room for consent and also controls the mass majority of both sides. They've gained a monopoly, yes, uh, but it's the same monopoly that has happened with all of Rockefeller medicine. The Flexner Report, Rockefeller medicine, uh, technocratic medicalized birth services are just part of Rockefeller medicine, so they have the monopoly. And as part of Rockefeller Medicine was to uh, initiate, well, first of all, defund anything that wasn't them to make sure there was no money going to them, and then to initiate smear campaigns under the guise of, you know, quackery. This is a quack, and that's a quack, and everything that isn't us is a quack. <laughs> and it's a quack, quack here, and a quack, quack there. And midwifery was eliminated through quackery. But midwifery is allowed back under the umbrella of Rockefeller Medicine. So they do practice. Now, it is different in the US. Uh, I accept that. I acknowledge it is different there because you do have uh, more options for midwifery. You can, many states, you can still use the word if you're not registered with a various uh, governing body. And there are opportunities there for pockets to operate independently and differently. So it does exist. Here, it doesn't. Here, if you are regulated, you operate under. Rockefeller medicine and the hospital's based system, even if you're birthing at home, if you want to use those services. So around the world, uh, traditional midwifery was eliminated. That was accomplished through the witch burnings. Um, midwifery was gone. Uh, the male midwife entered, the male midwife, and birth for women has never been safe since the male midwife entered, ever. The all research we have heading back to the earliest recorded data has shown that institutional birth has never been safe for women. It is safer now, it is safer, but it has never wholesale been safe. Uh, here in um, Ontario, uh, after World War II, the push was to move women out of homes and into the hospitals. And at the time in Canada, midwifery was illegal. And that happened prior to Confederation, when we joined provinces to become a country. That happened before the all-male me uh, brand-new Canadian Medical Association went to the all-male uh, parliamentarians of Upper Canada, which, is what, which later became Ontario. And as they're sitting at the Boulevard Club, which is a yachting club, and they're swirling their brandy and smoking their stogies, and the physician said, we want you to make midwifery illegal. Because if we can go to the birth, then we've got a customer for life. And the parliamentarians swirling their branding and said, smashing good idea. And midwifery was eliminated across Canada. Well, of course, there have always been women who show up, but as a profession. Uh, then in once the men went to uh, the all-male uh, medical school in Canada, the only one was McGill University, and they had no idea how to be at a birth. So they brought in midwives who were now illegal to teach them what to do. 
So in the history of birth here in Canada is the family physician was called if the family felt like it or if they had money. They stayed at home, then they called the neighbor. The neighbor came over. The neighborhood had four or five babies and she came over and then she attended four or five births and then it was the next neighbor's turn and she would come over and mind the children and help with the mother. And these uh, neighbors had... Well, they had no specific training in twins or breaches or neonatal resuscitation or hemorrhage control. The wellness of these at-home births, when compared to the hospitals in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, was that these neighbor births had four times less mortality and 10 times less morbidity. But in the 50s, there was a move to get women into the hospitals. Uh, It was just an agenda, medicalization agenda. Public health, if you can imagine public health doing this, went door to door uh, in Toronto, knocking on the doors to convince women to move from the home to the hospital, at the same time knowing she was four times more likely to die in a hospital. But they did it anyway, to convince the women that was a safer place to be. So it's never been particularly safe, although it is safer now. And then eventually, as uh, we women who were going back to just attending births again, uh, we stroppy cows, it's the M word. <laughs> and some said, I'm a midwife now. Uh, the Ontario Medical Association in 1987 wanted to put a stop to this. And then they forbade all of their family practitioners from attending home births. They used to, because it was just part of what they did and they liked it. They were now forbidden. They said, if you attend a home birth, you lose your, your license, your hospital privileges. So they stopped attending. And of course, the younger ones don't know their history. And they say, well, it's because it's so dangerous. No, it was just a political move to try and get we stroppy cows to stop doing what we were doing. And then eventually, in 1993, midwifery was decriminalized. And then it was um, taken under the umbrella of the usual Rockefeller medicine. So, But that's not a a unique history. That is uh, a history throughout the world that midwifery has been brought back under the umbrella of obstetrics. So they practice obstetrics on healthy women. And we can see how along the way, choices have just been chipped away and chipped away and chipped away twins and breach and home birth and midwifery. And now you just have one choice in some places. It's just mainstream OB care. And that's it. That's all you have. There's a, there's a cultural backlash right now. As I say, when families come to me, they present much like refugees. And what I am observing is there is an exodus from this industry. The industry is actually on the brink of collapse, but nobody notices. Uh, the Here in the Great White North, uh, medical practitioners, nurses, midwives, physicians who... Uh, still believed in medical autonomy, that believed in patient choice, and the Nuremberg Code were fired, and they've not been hired. So there are tremendous staffing shortages in the industry. And if we look at the law of diminishing returns, if the input of money is greater than the output of what they're delivering, the system collapses. Well, the output is pretty horrific at the moment. And Families are not using these services in the same way that they used to. They're leaving it. There is a a free birth movement in response to it. There's um, 
just women helping each other out again, like we used to. Uh, families are learning how to do it themselves. I'm offering to, I train traditional birth companions so that those with more complexities or who just don't want to go it alone will have somebody to be there with them with some skills and some mentoring and some education. There is an exodus happening and loss of control is triggering some, you know, some are asking questions and some are just defaulting to narcissistic indignation. What do, what do you mean you don't want this service? <laughs> do you want a dead baby? <laughs> wow. That is, it really, um, jazzes me up. It just sends chills down my spine to see women start to take back that control that should have never left our hands in the first place. It should have always been ours. It's innately just our right. Um, and it's been stripped from us. It is, um, I think, really mind-blowing to hear the similarities between a cult and the hospital system to put them side by side like that. I don't think a lot of people have ever thought about those. Yeah. I've gone down the rabbit hole. Um, I don't make things up. So if I say something, it's because I've gone down the research, <laughs> but uh, a, a study, it was from 2019. It was called the listening to mother's study recorded that reported that if a woman had a difference of opinion, from her medical practitioner, there was an 80% probability she was going to be mistreated and abused just for thinking differently. Wow. That now, is that doesn't help like behavior. Yeah. And it's just so scary to think that it's a system that, you know, is, is really built on the idea that you can come in and be taken care of during this very vulnerable time in your life. But in reality, it is, I, I think you had referred to an induction mill earlier. It's just a conveyor belt. It's just come in, sit down, be quiet, do what you're told, go home. Um, and if you try and deviate from that plan, if you try and have your own independent thoughts, if you try and have individualized care, for the most part, obviously holding space that there are some really great providers out there who are doing it different. I, I'm not trying to take away from that, but the mass majority of us don't experience that. We're not lucky enough to have that provider. And so a lot of us do get that very template, cookie cutter, do as I say type of care. Um, wow, that makes me want to cry. Uh, something that really shed some understanding for me was to, uh, spend some time learning systems theory mm. and system science, mm. system science, um, in some ways is the explanation of everything. Uh, and it's well worth it. Uh, it helps to explain why there is no change from within, you know, for a little while there parents had read more research than, you know, was reasonable to expect of a parent and said immediate cord clamping is not appropriate. It's not an appropriate intervention. And practitioners, I, I read many documents where they said, well, I don't really understand the parents, but it seems to be important to them. And it took maybe 20 years or so of this kind of advocacy. And it became 
more routine to delay the cord clamping according to the clock of perhaps three minutes or so. And uh, that has come back down to uh, where I am, it's between 30 and 60 seconds. So the international movement towards wait for white has fallen on deaf ears and made no impact. This system doesn't change. You can't change it from within. And I'm not one to waste my breath on it to say, you know, let's let's go in there and make them change because it is, there's nothing broken about it. Mm-mm. Absolutely nothing. Mm-mm. It is a well-functioning, well-oiled, productive, smooth running industry that is categorically absolutely not broken. If we look at systems theory, systems science, every system is set up with um, an end goal. There's a reason why they're existing. There's something they want at the end of it. And in order to accomplish that, what do they have to churn out as their output in order to accomplish that? Now, what do we have to do? We have to know what to put into it. What processes do we need to create the output that will then achieve the goal we want? And if we look at that and say, well, the industrialized birth services came along uh, to take the place of the midwives they had burned at the stake, of the women they had banished from the birth room, the lying in hospitals they had set up because it was more profitable than going into the homes. This entire industry was created to co-opt and control women's physiology for power and profit. At the same time, which makes this a little more complex, they also deliver medical services when it's needed. So it's more complex. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the system is to co-opt and control women's physiology for power and profit. And many of the ways they have to do that is they also have to deliver medical services. Otherwise, you know, they might end up killing too many of them. So they do, it's complex. But because it is so effective and the last three years of losing the advocates, of muzzling the women, incessant uh, fear porn, isolating people, their efficiency went through the roof. I mean, they got so good at what they do. We lost the advocates. We lost the doulas. The inductions went through the roof, C-sections through the roof. Uh, They became very much more effective. And I'm looking at them going, kudos. Well done, you. I mean, that's impressive. (laughs) It's impressive. So the system that I envision, the one that I am working to create, the purpose of mine is that more babies arrive safely and gently from healthy, empowered, non-traumatized mothers and uh, skilled, very knowledgeable, traditional birth companions that can help facilitate this end goal. And in order to produce traditional birth companions, I have to have the input, which of course is my course and my training. And when you encounter a very well-functioning system like the technocratic birth services, and you are trying to make change from the inside. And there are so many good and decent people doing what they can. And they do create tiny little changes and they do impact individuals and God bless them. Every one of them, God bless them. And they do make a difference for individuals. It doesn't change the function of the system. Anybody working to create large scale change in a system is called a disturbance. It interrupts the flow of a well-functioning system. And well-functioning systems know what to do with disturbances. 
they get rid of them, they destroy them. Uh, part of the, yep, uh, part of what the well-functioning system is trying to do to me is to destroy my credibility. And in order to destroy my credibility, they create smear campaigns and they make up nonsense. And I can't take credit for at least half of what they say about me. <laughs> but if you think, why does the birth plan not work? It's a disturbance. They know what to do with it. They, you know, turn them, put them down, say, well, we'll see how long it takes you to end up in the OR. So yeah, there are individuals there that look at the birth plan and do the best they can. But do birth plans across the board make a difference to the industry and how it functions? No, not one little bit. And it's really too bad. That really is because it could be used as such a great tool to help people advocate for what they want. But that also goes back to one of the things I think that irks me the most about this system. And I understand it was designed this way, but it's the fact that the onus of advocacy is put on the patient when that's not that. Yeah. I I'm the customer. I should be able to come and expect to be able to be treated with a certain level of decency and respect and collaboration and consent. Um, and it just, you know, I'll, I'll never shut up about this, but the fact that patients have to go in and advocate so hard fight for what they want is bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. It's designed that way. So it's intentional. Um, but, it can be intentional and bizarre, and it is. It's also incredibly unfair to women. Mm -hmm. uh, the Throughout pregnancy, the hormone estrogen rises, and it peaks at term. Estrogen is also called the hormone of accommodation. Estrogen is a hormone that influences our behavior to make us accommodating, welcoming, uh, and it should be. We're welcoming a precious new human into this world. We're opening our hearts and our families, our bodies to receive this precious, precious new one who will be embraced and loved and cared for. Estrogen is part of that priming. And as the estrogen rises to become so open and welcoming and accommodating, we head into an industry that is not set up for that. And so we'll just advocate for yourself. Just fight, just fight. It's, it's outrageous too ask that of a woman. And what we see then is uh, she doesn't want some procedure that is coming at her. And a common response, it's all in the academic literature, a common response is fawning. And she will, as a practitioner is coming at her to do something she doesn't want, to lessen the harm, she will say, but can I, can I just get out of bed and make you a cup of tea? You know, it looks like you haven't had a break in a while. Why don't I just go down to the vending machine and get you get you a granola bar? Because, you know, that might make you feel better. And that's a very common response. Hormonally driven, but it's also a safety mechanism. If I'm nice to you, perhaps you won't hurt me as badly. And I do say to people I train, and I've I've trained midwives in 125 countries, that if you have a a, a client who is that accommodating, who is offering to bake for you, who wants to connect you to their realtor and their travel agent, be very, very aware that this is fawning behavior and they may not trust you. And this is critical for trauma-informed care. I believe trauma-informed care is, should be mandatory, no exceptions. 
And I call trauma-informed care as life-saving as knowing CPR hand-washing mm-hmm. because trauma-informed care prevents PTSD, prevents many of the uh, the horrific things that can come with PTSD, including child abuse and neglect and suicide. It is life-saving. But, um, and I do have um, the world's uh, first and only, I believe, still uh, online uh, course to become fully trauma-informed for uh, the perinatal client. And medical practitioners won't take it. Mm. Um, they don't think they need it. Mm. I think the system has told them they don't need it. The system doesn't value trauma-informed care. So it, it you know just throws it to the wayside. There's no reason to take it because it's, it's not a value. Okay. So you keep mentioning your courses. Talk to us about the things that you offer for, um, you have a course for traditional birth keepers. Tell us about that. Uh, it began as a, well, I thought I have to do this before I retire. I can't be the only person who offers this kind of care. Uh, there are certainly, uh, birth keepers of various types, but, uh, Uh, the kind of service that I offer, which is uh, completely trauma-informed, specializes in trauma, uh, understands complexities, and has the skills to complexities that is non-medical and uh, holistic and integrative. So I thought, well, before I retire, this is nonsense. I've got to start training. So I created a course from scratch that it, it was the first cohort was a year. It took a year to get through it, and that included the trauma-informed course. And it equip someone to work with families from preconception to parenting. And these are families with complexities. This isn't what, um, you know, midwifery is allowed to work with, where their BMI is between this and this, and their age is between this and this, and their baby size is between this and this, and there's only one baby and it's only head down. Well, we don't do that. We just help, we just help families and they make the decisions. It's up to them. Do they feel it's in their best interest? Uh, so the first cohort was 12 months. Uh, one of the participants said it was like drinking from a fire hose. It is very comprehensive. I offered the second cohort to unfold over 18 months and it's still in process. But the need is so dire. Families are leaving in droves. There's an exodus. Many of them are deciding they will birth at home with loved ones. Absolutely. We'll do what we can to equip if you need it. And many are asking for a skilled companion. The need is so dire. So I'm starting a condensed nine months, same information, same course, same assignment, same everything (laughs) in nine months for full-time study for those that can, because the need is dire. And that starts in September. So I'm taking applications right now. That is amazing. Okay. Tell us about the application process. Who should apply? What kind of requirements should they have? What's, um, you know, what's included in that interview process? For the nine month course, it will be simpler, (laughs) not necessary, but simpler for those who already have a bit of an academic background in this area. So former nurses, former midwives, complementary care practitioners. Uh, I've had a number of nurses join because they were fired for um, believing in the Nuremberg Code and medical autonomy. Uh, I've had their outstanding 
contributions and members of this community. I'm so grateful for them. Uh, former midwives that would like to practice holistically. So that will find it simpler. Uh, doulas who have already been exposed to the birth industry, but really anybody who knows they need to participate in making a difference. It is simpler if they have a background. It is simpler if they've already been a birth nerd and exposed to a lot of things, which women who apply already are. They're already following people online. They're already reading books. They've already you know, been down a hundred rabbit holes. Uh, so a birth nerd, yeah, come on in. But it's somebody who feels that this, this is urgent and it is time for us to step up and say enough is enough we can do better ourselves yeah. and the application process it's uh i have they join the harrigan hive that's my free network it's off of social media and it's just a lovely friendly place we talk about birth outside the system support each other it's a beautiful place you have to join that that's harriganhive.com and when you join the hive then there's an application course and you just follow along the steps, download the application, fill it in and send it to me. And it's pretty simple. That is awesome. Oh my goodness. I know there are so many people out there listening, going to check that out. That is so exciting. Um, And you mentioned your next cohort starts in September. So people should get their applications in before that. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. There is a deadline, but I will accept latecomers. Okay, amazing. That's good to know. Um, we will put all of the links in the show notes, you guys, so that everyone has access to that. Billy, this conversation has been so eye-opening. I think this was a heavy conversation. I imagine a lot of our listeners walking away with new perspectives, perspectives that may feel a little uncomfortable right now, but also probably started a little bit of a fire inside of them or maybe got some wheels turning. If you've got anybody out there listening that is you know, curious about what they heard today and are wondering if birth outside of the system is right for them. What is your advice for them in terms of where to start to explore that for themselves? I connect to people. The change happens in community. Change doesn't happen just because you download some information. That is never where significant change happens. Significant change in perspective, where you were in one, you know, paradigm, and you leave it and you end up in another, it comes through great suffering, followed by great love. People leave these services, usually due to great suffering. They have been hurt, their family members have been hurt, their friends have been hurt, people they love have been hurt, and they leave through great suffering. And you don't just leave something, you go to something. And finding a new way of doing things comes through great love. And when they find people who are already exploring this, caring about each other, it matters if you ended up with PTSD. All that matters is not just a healthy baby. It matters if you ended up with PTSD. That is because that is unconscionable and you matter. And let's find ways to help you get well because you can heal from PTSD. 
you can. And when they find people who are willing and caring, then they have found their new home. And that's part of it is if there has been great suffering, you know, just an inquiry and just some information doesn't really change anything. But if there has been great suffering and you're looking for a place to find great love, you find people who get it, who understand. And then you talk it out and you think it out and you share and you get together with somebody and have a cup of tea and let the kids play in the backyard and join an online group. There's uh, Birth Trauma Ontario is one place where we offer a mother's form, the Harrigan Hive. We, we get it, we get it, and we care. And then, of course, there's lots and lots of groups and pages to follow, books to read, there lots of information there. But when they find great love, they will have found home. Oh, that just fills my soul with everything that's warm and fuzzy. This conversation has been amazing. Thank you so much for being here. It included, I think, such a deep conversation about consent and that when we start to chip away at options, it really reduces that consent piece. If if we don't have all of our options, then it's not truly an informed consensual decision because some options weren't even available. Um, it's really too bad that the hammer came down so heavily on midwifery when we know that midwifery is the answer to so many of the problems that we see in the birth world. Um, regardless of how you feel about home birth or hospital birth, the answer is midwifery care in almost every single situation. OB should be reserved for high-risk births. They are surgeons. They are essentially high-risk um medical providers and and your your midwives are medical providers that specialize and are experts in physiological normal expected labor and all of the normal variations of that so things like twins and breech babies these things aren't abnormal they're a normal variation of normal birth our system has just allowed them to become very taboo and has slowly diminished those skills to where it's almost unattainable to find a provider to give you support in, in those things. My vision is that families just learn to do this themselves. This is not rocket science. Um, my perspective is, and this tends to shock people, is right now the choice is you can have a the kid who makes your sandwich at Subway have vaginal breach skills. A mother comes in to get her sandwich. She goes into the bathroom or water break. She comes out having a precipitous labor with a little foot coming out. The kid behind the counter says, that's okay, ma'am. I can help. Jumps over the counter and is a more useful human. Why can't we do that? Your hairstylist should have vaginal breach skills. It's not rocket science. And if we return birth wisdom back to the community, and I say it is common knowledge for common families, having a baby is common knowledge for common families, return it to us. Now, if a situation arises that the family doesn't have the skills and they should be able to help breach, that's not a rocket science, something that they don't understand, go to a midwife. I'm in usual situations. They should be highly skilled. They don't need to be what 
granny knows. They don't need to be what auntie knows or the kid behind the counter at Subway. They don't need that. They need to be highly skilled. And if they need a surgeon, go to a surgeon because you do need a surgeon sometimes. You do need somebody with highly developed surgical skills. So that's my vision. And I think let's just get it back to families. We can do this. Yeah, we can. Give the power back to the families. Wow, you guys, this was such a wonderful way to kick off our brand new season of the Birth Lounge podcast. Stay tuned each week. Come back and visit each week. Hang out with me with new guests talking about how we can put that family power back in the hands of the people that it belongs to to help get that consensual care out in our community so that we can hopefully restore birth to what it is supposed to be. This beautiful journey that families embark on together to oh my gosh oh my goodness I could rattle off so many benefits of having the family unit be together and be respected as a whole unit um, during this birth process it improves the outcomes for literally everyone involved so I'm very excited to be back with you for another season can't wait to see you next week bye y'all Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.